Greetings, friends. This is Benjamin Weiss of Susquehanna Permaculture. You've probably heard me interviewed in the past on Scott's show. Our conversations have focused mostly on the topic of rewilding and where that intersects with permaculture. Now I'm very excited to let you know that Scott has welcomed me to produce a series of guest episodes for the podcast entitled Rewilding Notes. These episodes will focus on my own process of coming to know, a phrase that I borrow from Gregory Cajete's incredible book, Native Science. In these episodes, you'll hear brief interviews with many of my friends, mentors, and colleagues, and you'll also hear report-ins on rewilding projects from here in central Pennsylvania, where I live, and from around the country, and hopefully also around the world. I look forward to sharing my experiences with you on Scott Mann's The Permaculture Podcast. And with that update and introduction from Ben Weiss about our upcoming collaborative project, this is The Permaculture Podcast. I'm Scott Mann, and you're listening to episode 1624, The Climate Change Playbook. Our guest today is Linda Booth Sweeney, co-author, along with Dennis Meadows and Jillian Martin Mayhairs, of The Climate Change Playbook. During the conversation, Linda shares with us how we can use games to better understand systems, specifically climate change. This is important because the crisis that the weirding of our atmosphere is causing, and our need to communicate this and other issues clearly, in a fun, proactive, and non-threatening way, while wrapping everything within one of the core roots of permaculture, systems thinking. This discussion takes those ideas of climate change and systems, and helps anyone who is practicing permaculture to speak with more clarity about both. Before we begin, this show needs your support, as it's a lot like your public radio station, dependent on listeners to continue. Unlike public media, however, the podcast doesn't receive any government funding or grants of any kind, and rather relies on everyone who listens to keep it free and readily available. You directly make this show possible whenever you give one, ten, or a hundred dollars, and you can do that either on a one-time basis or in an ongoing way. If you'd like to make a one-time donation, you'll find a paypal.me link in the show notes, or you can use the donate button on the side of the main page at thepermaculturepodcast.com. If you'd like to give in an ongoing way, you can become a sustaining supporter at patreon.com slash permaculturepodcast. Whatever you can give, whatever you can give makes a huge difference towards the continuance and growth of this show. For projects like the one with Ben Weiss and some others that are currently in the works. So thank you for being a part of this community for so long and to helping me keep the show on the air. Now then, on to Linda. I'll join you again afterwards. Then, Linda, can you give us a bit of your biography and background and how you came to do what you do? I think a lot of this stems from the time I spent on Outward Bound courses uh, and also working for Outward Bound. Outward Bound is an outdoor experiential education organization that's uh, global, actually. I ended up, after doing Outward Bound in um, the west of western Colorado, Moab, Utah area, I ended up working for Outward Bound in New York City, working with these, uh, youth and adult programs and also um, leadership for organizations. And while there, somebody put um, a copy of The Fifth Discipline by Peter Senge on my desk. And that book was all about, well, it's all about organizational learning, but of the disciplines he talks about, one was systems thinking. And I realized that all the time I was spending out in the wilderness without were bound and on solos and really getting 
kind of the principles of nature in my bones, not so much the head part, but in the just the rhythm of nature and the, the relate interrelationships that a lot of what Peter was working with organizations to help shift their mindsets around um, parts versus systems, let's say, understanding the organization themselves as a system and their work. I was trying to do that in my work with Outward Bound. So I basically um, followed him pretty intently. He was working at MIT. I ended up at at Harvard for a master's and then and worked with him at what was called the Organizational Learning Center. Um, now it's called SOUL, Society for Organizational Learning. And then um, w- while I was doing my doctorate, I met and began to work with uh, John Sturman, who is at the Sloan School at MIT. I was taking any possible course I could take in what's called system dynamics. So it's the concepts and the tools and the modeling all around systems concepts. So just, you know, systems, I keep on using that term, but, you know, it's really anything that's two or more parts that interact to form a whole is a system. And often... um, when we're in school, we're not taught to see systems, or at least historically. That's actually changing now. But So there, the time that I was going to Harvard, there wasn't a lot of explicit coursework that was looking at system as, as an interrelated structure of reality. But MIT had a really thriving program uh, in system dynamics. But anyway, when I was working with um, John Sturman, he and I looked at conceptions of climate through a systems lens and really found that people had a there was a lot, there was misconceptions about conservation of matter in the sense of there's a metaphor in systems called uh, or structure called stock and flows and that's when something accumulates so it could be water in a bathtub or money in the bank or in the case of climate we were looking at you know CO2 in the atmosphere so that is the stock, if you will, that's accumulating. Um, We use the metaphor of a bathtub to represent that stock. And then the flow in and out, you know, flow in would be carbon emissions, you know, burning fossil fuels. And then the flow out could be, you know, if you think about a drain out of a bathtub, the flow out could be carbon sequestration and other means of absorbing CO2. So when you really ask people if the rate at which water flowing into the tub is twice that it's flowing out, do they get that the amount of water would be increasing in a bathtub? And, you know, really, it's actually surprisingly not intuitive. You have to really think about that. And that's actually what's happening in the atmosphere, that twice the amount of CO2 is flowing into the atmosphere as is being absorbed, let's say, through carbon sinks. And if you understand how a bathtub works, you know that the amount of CO2 is in the atmosphere that's accumulating is increasing. And then you can get really discerning about listening to, you know, policy recommendations that say, you know, we're going to slow the rate of growth of CO2 emissions. And if the rate of if the rate flowing in, you know, the faucet is still turned up twice as high at twice the rate that it's flowing out, the the accumulation is still going to increase. It might just increase at a slower rate, but it's still going to increase. So we used John and I used the bathtub metaphor in a lot of the work we did and the research we did. So that's a long way of saying how I got here. I really, really fundamentally found that systems as a framework for understanding climate, but in my other work, it's understanding, you know, let's say, childhood obesity or understanding farm systems, food systems, is a really, it matches reality better for me, you know, because I think the 
fundamentally reality is is interrelated. You know, we separate in our minds, we compartmentalize, but that's actually not how the world is. So I hope that gives you an answer of how I got to climate and systems. It does. And my first introduction to that bathtub model was through Danella Meadows, Thinking in Systems. Mm-hmm. Yes. And it's interesting for all of the times that I was studying systems from like a computer science modeling background that we never broke it down to that kind of a simple metaphor for the inflows and outflows and our stock. Well, I'm glad the metaphor works for you, and I think it works for a lot of people. And in the book, the climate change playbook that we're going to talk about, you know, there is a really simple exercise in there that you ex- physically experience that bathtub as a metaphor. You're walking in and out of a you know, made-up bathtub. You put tape on the ground, and you, and you really get that if the flow's greater going in it than out, then it's going to accumulate. And if the flow is less than the drain, then the then it will start to decrease. If it's the same, right, flow in and flow out, then the, the level in the tub, the CO2 in the atmosphere, will stay steady. So it's some fundamental understanding of how systems, and then you can extend that to the climate as a system, how they work and that how that works. I think that helps people to have leverage, helps them to you know, be awake in terms of understanding climate dynamics, be aware. And looking at your bio, that your doctorate was in education, uh, you have an EDD from Harvard. Is that why you were interested and drawn to writing the climate change playbook in order to give a better way for people to understand what's at stake here? That's a really good question. <laughs> I really care about what people intuitively, naively, naturally, you know, come up with a lot of words for that, think how they just behave. And I think I got part of that, that partly came through Outward Bound where we learned through games to just be students of our own behavior. You know, you watch yourself doing things, playing these games, and you realize, well, you have knee-jerk reactions or you have certain assumptions, right? And the games bring that out. And uh, Harvard gave me the human development, bridging, learning about pedagogy that moves you from point A to point B, you know, how to be, how to focus, how to be more developmental when there's a learning goal. So combining understanding how learning happens, let's say, for different age groups with real deep understanding of how systems work, that combination led me to climate because I think we have to meet people where they're at, right? We can't meet them as if we're experts from NASA or MIT and, you know, you wonder why people can't engage and think it's for the experts to deal with, right? This is not that. I think if you look at the climate change playbook, the stuff in there is, you know, get some, get some uh, painter's tape, get an old coffee can, get, um, you know, a pencil and you too can get some chips and dip out and get, you know, your friends around and really roll your sleeves up and A, learn some of the dynamics about climate change, but be able to talk to, to then go out and talk to other people. So it's a little more, I don't think grassroots is necessarily the right way to say it, but it's bridged from the, it's, it's, we've got the rigor, rigorous science here, but we've also just have some human understanding and understanding that people have to make meaning, right? They have to make sense for it themselves. And I think Harvard really, I, my advisor at Harvard was a, um, is a man named Bob Keegan, 
and uh, he wrote a book called In Over Our Heads and a lot of other books with his partner, Lisa Leahy, um, that really gave me an appreciation for meeting people where they're at and understanding developmentally where all different ages. And it's not, you can't assume that certain ages are at certain places, but just understanding the range. A lot of my background in education comes from the environmental education movement, the work of people like David Orr and David Sobel. And it was one of the ongoing lines from my advisor for my graduate program. He always said that we should aim to be a guide on the side rather than a sage on the stage, which allowed an opportunity then for people to make their own connections and to draw out of them what they were interested in and guide their education and thinking in a way that they came to their own conclusions rather than trying to force something upon them. Yeah, and to create the conditions and create the environment create the setting, in my case, it's a lot through activities and experiential, that you can see your thoughts in action. You know, Bob Keegan would say to have your thoughts as opposed to being had by them, right? To make that subjective objective shift, um, then you've got leverage, then you can take different actions, but you've got to see your own thoughts in action. I think I don't know if it's first, but it's pretty close to first. You know, you really have to understand how you think and how you're operating habitually. And then where does game theory and game play create that intersection for you? It's inviting. It's non-threatening. It allows you to, you know, who doesn't want to play? I mean, for the most part, right? And so you enter into these fun situations that... um, for example, in the climate playbook, there's, a, there's an activity called um, thumb wrestling. It's just something that you think of from your, your school days. But with really good debriefing, you see that it really sets you up for competition versus collaboration. Uh, and what is that assumption and how does that play into how we think about climate, for example? So the gaming is the stage, if you will. It's the, the warm invitation that then allows you to just let let some of the barriers down and engage with yourself, understanding how how you think and how others think, and to then potentially change that thinking. You know, you have to be able to, uh, in dialogue, there's a principle of surface your assumptions, test them. And then the third stage is to, you decide if you want to take those assumptions back, you actually like what you you know how you view the world or in, in certain setting situations, or you may say, hey, that's actually not serving me. It's not serving us collectively. Uh, I need to I need to alter that. That was a bit of a pointed question on my part because I'm a longtime gamer, starting with board games and role-playing games as a child, and I still continue to do that now, as well as having developed some programs for a local nonprofit that's helping families and children. So it's interesting then from the other side to hear this being applied to the way that we can understand climate change. And that's the other thing is I just feel like this really, this this approach has the ability to engage those who feel disconnected, who feel a whole range of things, but hopeless could be one. I mean, I really want to focus a lot on teens to make them feel, hopefully they feel empowered, that they understand more of the climate dynamics themselves, they feel empowered to talk to other people, engage them. You know, a lot of the, I'm not trying necessarily to promote this book, but I think a lot of the things that are great fits for young people is that a lot of these games are very portable. You could be sitting at the lunch table in school and do 
four or five of them easily, you know. So you could sit and you could be in front of a, you know, in the, have an assembly, let's say, and do a bunch of them. So there's, a, there's just a lot of range there that I think with some enthusiasm behind it, you can, you can do some really good work. And it's one of the things that I like about the layout is that in the introduction to each game, you give some information about it, it's linked to climate, and then what's needed to run through it. And in many cases, these are, you know, no more than 10 or 15 minutes for the majority of the different games. There's also generally not a lot of space or equipment necessary. A little, uh, you know, a couple of pieces of paper, as you say, some tape, maybe some pens to write some things down with, and you're ready to go. Right. And that was that was by design. You know, there's another book that I wrote the first volume in 1995. You know, I realized we just celebrate the 20th, 20th anniversary of the, it's called the Systems Thinking Playbook. And that one has, you know, it's a little more intense. It still has a lot of the, you know, some of the games in here, but, you know, there's a plank in one of them and there's dog biscuits and there's always like a whole, you know, a, a wide range of um, supplies needed. This one, it's even more portable, let's call it, than the first one. And with that portability, if someone is interested in these ideas and they would like to try one or two of these games, which ones would you suggest people start out with? Is the book laid out in order from like beginning to end with where we should go through it? Or are there ones that you feel stand out as a good place for like a small group to begin? They're in alphabetical order. So I wouldn't say they're in order of any sort of priority. But for ease of just kind of dipping your toe in the water and seeing how it goes, I would say the, there's one called Arms Crossed, which is the first one. Really simple to execute if you just spend a, a, some time up front reflecting on what the outcome is you want with the conversation. I would, I would definitely do that. Then I think that one is a great one to start with. I think the circles in the air is another one which really has a high impact. You know, people get the difference between they're doing a, a circle in the air with their finger and they end up changing directions. They actually don't change directions, but they think they've changed directions, and it's really a good one to get to talk about perspective. So I think those two are a great place to start. When it comes to the games, you have them kind of laid out in a chart in the beginning where you have three different functions, uh, mass games, demonstration games, and participation games. Could you give us a bit of an introduction to those ideas and why you included those three types of functions? You know, sometimes you have 500 people, if you're lucky, right? And uh, big conferences, big student gatherings, and you want to up the interactivity, get people thinking differently. And those, so those mass games are good for that when you have large numbers. When you have, you know, the, let's say you're sitting around a conference table or it's, you're really trying to make a, have a longer debrief and you have time to thoughtfully um, have people comment and interact. And I think the demo, some of those demonstration games are really good. You can get into a rich personal conversation and then there's the participation games that are kind of more in the middle, so you know, more like 30 people. And so it kind of depends on, you, know, you can use these games in different ways. One is you start with what's the concept that you're trying to get across, and there's a, each game has a, like a pithy 
phrase that describes what those concepts are. So if you have a specific idea, you know, accumulation, that idea of, let's say, stocks and flows, well, then you, know, you might want to, and you have the right size group in the bathtub game. So you can start that way, or you can start with, well, I've got this size group, and that's where those distinctions between mass and more intimate games, that's the way you would go in. So it's just a way of sorting based on your needs. And then where you mentioned the pithy phrases, like the arms crossed game that you mentioned, that begins with when conditions change, habits must change. Right, yeah. And so if you look at the, um, at the table of contents, they're all summarized there. You know, circles in the air, the one I mentioned, our perspective affects the actions we take in complex systems. So where you stand in the system, are you a policymaker? Are you a farmer? Are you a corporate leader? You know, really sensitizes to that perspective and so that we're not creating competing priorities and pulling at each other. It's the story of the blind man and the elephant. I'm not sure if you, you must know that story. If I remember correctly, it's like there are five men who are all blind standing around an elephant. One's feeling the trunk, one's feeling the tail. You have somebody feeling an ear, a leg, and so on. Yeah, and it's an old Sufi tale. It's just such a perfect fit for the idea of why we want to think more systemically, but you know, in in the tale, just as you said, a group of blind men come upon an elephant, and they each are feeling a part of the elephant, and are really arguing from their own perspective what that elephant is. It's a tr- it, it's a hose. No, it's a rug. You know, the one that has the back says it's it's a rug. No, it's a a rope. The one that has the tail, right? And the point is, they all have the elephant, but they're arguing from their perspective what that elephant is. They don't see the bigger picture. And I think that circles in the air really gets to how you can argue from different perspectives about the same thing. And if you know that, how do you change your perspective? Sometimes it's physically stepping out of your perspective to understand the rational perspective of somebody else who's physically or even um, maybe not physically, but because of their role, has a different view of that system. And so that you're not let's say, creating programs or decisions that counteract each other, you really need to get a handle on the whole system. And from systems, the work that I do is I do systems mapping for people, and part of it is that you help them to see all the parts of the elephant and how they interrelate. Is it in that space where you and your co-authors introduce these different misconceptions and system behaviors that these games can address that it can help draw out from people a better understanding of what they just don't necessarily know. Yeah, it does help to draw out misconceptions. It does help to draw out the idea of climate being a system, which is not necessarily something we A, learned in school or B, see in the newspaper, right? We often see the parts so there's a game in the in the book called The Web of Life, and the the out desired outcome is to better understand systems, make the interconnections visible, right? Because if you really think about it, you don't typically see a system walking around. A system is it's the relationships, the interconnections between and among that make up a system. And so in order to understand something as a system, we have to make it visible, whether it's sketch on the back of a napkin or a full-on what's called a causal loop diagram or a systems map or a system simulation, right, where you're modeling, quantifying the different key factors or variables and then showing how they interrelate 
how if one goes up and one goes down, you know, what's the impact on the larger web, if you will? And that web of life really is a step towards that understanding. It does. And it's in looking at this, because the games are broken down so that we can look at habitual behavior, inappropriate frames, uncertainty, autonomous behavior, long delays, as well as magnification. Can you give us a bit of an understanding of, of what each of those are and how they impact our understanding of climate? So, the, so first of all, I think we have to just go back to understanding that it's the relationships between the parts that produce a system's behavior. So a really simple example could be two siblings, right? I have this situation in my own house, you know, where, you know, this happened when my kids were little, but a brother gives one brother a little push, you know, and the other one pushes back a little harder. And then, you know, so that's, that's something called escalation, right? Before you know it, I got one coming when they were little crying on my lap. I remember reading at one point, and I will get back to your question, but I'm just going to take a quick example, this story called Pallas and Hercules by, it was an Aesop story, and it was basically the story of Hercules going, you know, down the road one day and coming upon this monster called Strife, and, and as, as Hercules fought Strife, Strife got bigger, Hercules got more angry, fought him, you know, more, Strife got even bigger, and it was Pallas, who's also Athena, coming in saying, and if you leave that Strife alone, he'll get smaller, but it was the whole idea of it's the interconnection between those two, the being linked, one fighting and the other one pushing back even more, that led to the growth of, of in that case, you know, more aggression, let's call it. So we want to shift people's focus away from one part to the interrelationships that are producing these greater behaviors. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. And we are not habitually taught that. I will say we're just across the board, not taught to think about how interrelationships create behavior. That's a fundamental principle of systems. So you know that nothing stands alone. You know that you're always looking for context. You're always looking for how, what's the interrelationships here and how does some of the, you start to, you, you track and trace connections, right? So when we go to, when, to answer your question about systems behaviors, a habitual behavior that we're trying to get to is, is just that, is to see how we have blinders on to focus on the part versus to understand the relationships that are there. That's, you know, one shift. You know, how can our efforts to reduce climate change leverage those connections? So let's say um, multiple organizations working together to, you know, produce a common goal. So inappropriate frames is another one, and that has to do with a lot of different things, but it can do with um, having too narrow of a boundary, having an inappropriate time frame. So frames can be temporal, meaning, you know, time. It can be a geographic. So let's say, you know, you're, you're looking at, you've set your target to look at changing conception of, of climate change. If you set your target at a year, when really it's going to be a five- or ten-year change, you could give up after a year because you you haven't set your time frame appropriately. And then geographic, same thing. You know, it may be that changes around, let's say, water use, you have to deal with a whole region as opposed to your one community because the connections are broader than than your own one than your one community. Do you see what I'm saying? If you have to be, you're just aware of the frames that you're using, 
in your being discerning about uh, what you're doing from a time perspective, from a geographic perspective. I interviewed David Peter Stroh about his book, Systems Thinking for Social Change. And David is uh, one of Peter Senji's colleagues for some time. I know. He's a friend. He's a colleague, too. Yep. Okay. Yeah. And it was one of the questions that he raised that really helped me to understand that idea of frame and some of these temporal issues and other pieces was when he asked, you know, how are you a part of the problem that you're trying to solve? And the ways in which we can kind of dismantle some of these issues and have a, a... a more appropriate response to them by understanding how our own perspective may be influencing these negative outcomes. Yeah, that would be exactly, where do you set the boundary? Are you outside the boundary (laughs) or are you in? Are you part of the system? Most of the times we're not outside. Right. It's exogenous versus endogenous influences. Most of the time it's endogenous within. With what you've presented in such a slim volume, there's so much that I would love to dig in with you about with each of the games and how they influence these ideas and can be applied, especially for permaculture educators. I see this as such a great book because we're very often looking for games and other like hands-on experiences that we can have with our students in the classroom setting while teaching permaculture, whether that's a full permaculture design course or just to illustrate a particular issue. And here, you and your co-authors have provided us with 22 quick, easy games that we can share with students regardless of what space we're in because of how limited the supplies are that are needed and with the wide range of available participants that are necessary. And with that in mind and with your own thoughts and work on permaculture as you walk down more of that road, do you have a vision of where you'd like to see this work go and how it can influence not only our broader conversation but also folks who are practicing permaculture? Well, that's another good question. (laughs) I'd actually like to see a stronger connection between systems thinking and really at the heart of who I am, in addition to being a writer, is a systems educator. You know, that's just so fundamental to me. So I'd like to see a stronger connection between systems thinking and permaculture and really the, these habits of mind, if you will, that are really central to systems thinking. There's habits of mind and practices, we can call them, that are central to permaculture. And if you really look at it, the two are very similar. You know, I love, there's a book that I love by Toby Hemingway, Gaia's Garden. You know, he talks about, fundamentally, permaculture is about observing. Slow down, observe before you act. Systems thinking is all about the shift from problem uh, problem solving, problem definition first. You know, deep understanding of the situation. What we say is go slow to go fast, right? There's the whole permaculture connect, connect the elements of a design to create useful relationships, right? In a, in a permaculture setting, same thing with systems thinking. We look to where can connections produce something greater. So that's the design part of systems thinking. There's, you know, a lot of times we use systems concepts and tools to understand a system, but we can also use it to design the connections that we want to see happen. I could go on. You know, there's just there's a whole focus on leverage points for systems, the same thing, that sometimes smaller actions can produce greater results. If you understand the, the interrelationships that are there, that's where you have to do that. In, our, in the systems world, we have to do the systems mapping to first get the picture of reality as close as we can because no map ever is reality, right? It's just our mental models on paper. And, you know, there's another one that I just love about permaculture, really leveraging cycles, right? Understanding the 
natural rhythms of nature, which gets me back to my outward bound days, and at the same time in systems, really understanding how the dynamics of systems. We end up coming up with things that are called systems archetypes that folks who have studied systems in all different you know, settings, biology, business, and these archetypes show up. And it's similar to permaculture in the sense of, well, if we know that these archetypes show up, just like we understand that they're natural cycles, how can we work with them as opposed to working at odds with them, right? I think that's a huge low-hanging fruit area for, for systems and, uh, well, well, permaculture is already doing it, but I think we can leverage that in the uh, systems. So I guess that's my vision is I'd love to see a closer relationship between systems education and uh, permaculture. And there's a great grounding in the original work of permaculture in you know systems ecology and the work of Howard Odom. And there seems to have been a shift at some point to be focusing more on the techniques and the -the on-the-ground impacts of gardening. Though over the last couple of years, we've seen a bit of a resurgence to examining these different, more systemic approaches to examining not only how we're going to work with the landscape, but also with social and economic systems, and also to have a better, more fundamental understanding of climate. And I thank you for being a part of that. Well, thank you, and I just have to say that I think I have always admired the work and read Howard Odom, and I think what's happening now is climate is urgent. You know, we can't, it, it's like launched us into being more active. So it, a lot of this has always been there, but we really have to take action, and, you know, systems, permaculture can really have an the combo has an impact on ecosystems, social, economic, tech, you know, so many, it's a multi-solving opportunity. And though I like that as a place where we could end, I always open the floor for any final thoughts. So do you have any for the listeners before we draw this to a close? Um, I guess I would have to just reiterate that climate change is urgent. You know, it's great to have a book out and I'm delighted after seven years of working on this one to have it out, but it's really an issue that I would love to see people of all ages roll their sleeves up, learn about, get out there and talk about, because the more we can connect the dots amongst ourselves, the more we can have a positive impact. So, you know, people who might think that the book is for activists, right, or, you know, teachers, I I would love just anyone to pick this book up and you can read in the intros and the debriefs, you get all kinds of good information about climate change that's written in an an accessible way because that was something I really care about. My co-authors do too, but I'm really a harp on that a lot. And then there's also the opportunity to play with your grandchildren. You know, there's games in there. Um, Play with, you can play with, I, I do these with executives. It just has a wide range because we all can appreciate, you know, a little bit of fun as a way, uh, as a doorway to learning. Well, thank you for that. And thank you very much for writing this book. I think that it's a great toolkit for permaculture practitioners and others to really dig in with climate change and be able to share it in a way that is not threatening and doesn't need to be so fact-based, but allow people to really understand their own role and impact as well as that urgency that you share. So thank you for being a part of this. My pleasure. Thank you for uh, reaching out for the interview. And that was Linda Booth Sweeney. You can find her at lindaboothsweeney.com and the Climate Change Playbook at chelseagreen.com. For Patreon supporters, I'm giving away a copy of this book to one of you. You'll find the details on the member page. 
And if you do decide that you'd like to buy a copy, be sure to use your discount code to Chelsea Green in order to save 25%. Also, be sure and visit the show sponsors and thank them for helping us keep things going. They are permikids.com, goodseedco.net, thefifthworld.com, and yourgardensolution.org. Games are a fun and upbeat way to play, and as we heard from Linda, also to learn. And in her book, she and her co-authors have provided us a way to do so with only a handful of props and a little bit of time. As a longtime gamer myself, I've come to understand that play in the space created can allow you to safely try your hand at storytelling, diplomacy, conflict resolution, to deepen your emotional intelligence, your understanding of mathematics or game theory, and so much more. That we can apply that same play to bigger issues, whether around a table or filling an auditorium, is a new way to reach out and to talk to people about climate change, systems thinking, permaculture, and a myriad of other things that we face as practitioners. And the Climate Change Playbook provides a space for us to use games developed by others to begin this process and in turn to create new games to include in our permaculture classes and other work. When it comes to permaculture, are there already games you use to teach these concepts? Do you already have a copy of the Climate Change Playbook? What games do you like from it? As a parent, do you use any games with your children to teach them the ideas of permaculture or sustainability? Whatever way you're bringing play into your practice, I'd love to hear from you. Call 717-827-6266, email show at thepermaculturepodcast.com, or if you like, drop something in the mail. The Permaculture Podcast, P.O. Box 16, Dauphin, Pennsylvania, 17018. From here, the next episode is a conversation with Pascal Baudard about his book, The New Wildcrafted Cuisine. Until then, spend each day playing and creating the world you want to live in by taking care of Earth, yourself, and each other.